I mentioned to some of you uh, a few weeks ago in a service that uh, I was able to come to that God had laid on my heart a passage of Scripture for the message for Resurrection Sunday morning. It's an unusual passage. It's not typically uh, thought of as a resurrection-type text or even one that fits with the message, but it was very clear what God was speaking to me about, and as I have thought about this passage and meditated on it over the last several weeks, I believe God has a word for all of us this morning. You know, there's something that every single person in this room has in common with each other. All of us share this commonality. In fact, it's something that we share with every human being on the planet. There's, there's something that's a part of us that, uh, that is a part of who we are as human beings. Some weeks ago, Herb spent some time developing the idea of having a biblical worldview. Whether or not you have articulated your worldview, you have one. It guides the way you interpret and understand the world, and it kind of gives uh, uh, integration to your life. In the same way, every single one of us has a goal that motivates us towards what we believe will provide meaning and happiness in our lives. It's it's an internal kind of motivation or drive that moves us in the direction of what we believe as individuals is going to make our lives valuable and, and make sense. Now, some will immediately uh, take up the theme and argue with that and say, well, that may be true of uh, good economies and uh, industrialized or modern nations where we have uh, the luxury of thinking those kinds of thoughts because the the basic needs are already met. But I would uh, suggest to you that every person on the planet shares this this commonality of having a drive, a goal that they believe is going to bring them satisfaction. Even in underprivileged countries, even in areas of extreme poverty, if the, the most fundamental need is finding the day's food, it's still a driving motivator of life. And as we move away from some of those fundamental things toward more uh, perhaps uh, esoteric or privileged kinds of thinking, maybe uh, we turn our attention to other kinds of goals. You know, people pick different ones. Uh, Beyond sustenance, a worthy goal, at least in the minds of many people, is the goal of family, to have uh, a marriage, to have children, to uh, carry on a heritage, to pass along a family name, to, to invest in the next generations. For some people, that is the driving motivation of their lives. 
They want more than anything else to have a family and to prepare the next generation and to contribute to the betterment of the world by contributing children that are going to make a difference in the next uh, line to come. Some people pick like a career or a profession. They have something burning inside of them that demands expression and they look for a way to get that thing out in, in a context where they can make a difference in society. They want to uh, invent something or they want to build a corporation or they want to uh, develop some kind of idea that is important to them. Perhaps they want to better society with a career in politics and make a difference at a legislative le- level and help to govern the affairs of men and women. They, they have this inner motivation to, to be significant in those ways. Some people simply look for security. They, they want to have a home. They want to have a bank account. They want to have a retirement account. They want to have stability. They want to have money. They want to know that whether hard times hit or whatever comes their way, they're going to land on their feet. And they spend their lives pursuing those kinds of things that will surround them with security and with stability. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive goals. Uh, we're, We're not that simple. They're arranged in our lives rather complexly. And they interweave so that at one time it looks like we may be pursuing one thing or another. But you can almost kind of tell what drives a person. You know, if you're at a social gathering, a party or something, and you're meeting new people for the first time, and you go up and you introduce yourself and you say, Hi, I'm Paul Martin, and, you know, and you are, and they, they give you their name. And, and you say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, the person that has marriage and family and children as a goal will say something like, well, I'm so-and-so, and my high school sweetheart whom I married is over there, and I have three children, and, you know, we do thus and so on our vacations, and, oh, and by the way, I, I, I work for IBM. That's secondary to their real goal in life. The thing they want to talk about is what really motivates them. I heard one time of a surgeon whose daughter brought the prospective son-in-law home to meet the family. And uh, he tried to begin the conversation by saying to Dad, uh, well, what, uh, what caused you to choose surgery as a profession? And he was already off on the wrong foot. The man looked at him and said, young man, surgery is not my profession. It is my life. 
Well, if I needed surgery, I would want him for a doctor. Not sure I would want him for a father, because he declared himself quite clearly that his life consisted of surgery. You know, it's not just people in demanding professions such as uh, medicine or technology or whatever that make those kinds of errors. Pastors and missionaries are notorious for making those kinds of errors. We often substitute the work for the person and we get caught up in kingdom building uh, rather than Christ's exaltation. It's not a hard thing to do, but you don't have to talk to a person very long before the motivating factor of their life kind of percolates to the surface and lets you know what lies beneath as the meaning. Well, whether you have articulated the goal that motivates you and written it down on a piece of paper and perhaps framed it and hung it in your office or on your kitchen wall or by the bathroom mirror, wherever it is that you put those things you don't want to forget. (laughs) By the way, you don't have to worry about forgetting it because this motivating goal is built into the warp and woof of your life. And it informs your decisions and governs your choices and guides you even subconsciously so that you are living your life out of your deeply held belief. This is what will make me happy and make sense to me. We can call that the foundational cornerstone of our life. It's, it's the, the anchor point. It's the bedrock. When I was in construction in my college days in North Georgia, we went about uh, building foundations in a different way than they used to millennia ago. Uh, we would dig footings and put steel in there and pour concrete and kind of work it out, but there were some commonalities still. Every builder has got to determine that the structure he's going to build is going to fit the land. You can't build just anything on any piece of property. You've got to make some, some decisions about what kind of structure will rest comfortably and look appropriate on the land that you've chosen. And in the New Testament period of time, when they would make those decisions and decide the orientation of a structure and how it was going to to ultimately look, uh, they would decide where the anchor point might be. Imagine, if you will with me, a kind of a sloping surface and you're going to build a large, beautiful uh, public structure, so say a theater or something, uh, out of this uh, sloping ground and you want to anchor it properly. You don't want it to slide off the hill. When I lived in Tennessee, we actually had a house that did that. Um, some people paid a lot of money, had a home built on the side of a hill, and uh, it looked beautiful until it started sliding down and coming apart. And then they couldn't inhabit it, and 
Of course, it wasn't worth anything, and somebody made a strategic error. Uh, it wasn't anchored well. And so what they would do is, once they decided how that was going to be, perhaps on the low side as an anchor point that would not move, they would have a cornerstone hewn that exactly fit the structure. Usually that cornerstone was larger than any other stone in the foundation. They didn't pour concrete in those days. They had to place these stones with the excellence of, of uh, masonry uh, ability. And so they would hew this stone out, and some of them would be huge. They might be six feet square and, uh, and as tall as that. And they would anchor that in the corner. And that would become the, the point at which the rest of the building derived its strength. The foundations would go out from that in two directions and ultimately uh, wrap around and form the basis of the whole building. It would be built level and then the structure would be built on top of it. But the anchor point, the cornerstone foundation, was the one that was laid as the builder's choice. This is the most important stone that will govern this structure. And so whatever it is that is driving us, whatever it is that is motivating us, we can think of as, as that cornerstone, that foundation block that has been hewn and cast in our lives that sets the tone for how we build the rest of the structure. That usually develops during childhood with impressions and ideas, and then it moves on as we get older until by the time we're in our 20s. Usually that stone is set in place, and it begins to shape the future of all of our decisions. <clears throat> the problem is, if the cornerstone is defective, we're in trouble. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of the cornerstone. If it's not large enough, it won't stand firmly when the winds and the waves and the tremors of life assault it. If it has fissures down inside, if it's flawed, if it has cracks, eventually under the weight of the structure it will collapse. And then the whole structure will be in jeopardy. The cornerstone is the essential foundation for all the rest of our lives. If we choose wisely, our life will not be shaken. If we choose poorly, somewhere along the way we'll be in trouble. And in my examples to you, I chose what most people consider to be worthy goals. Providing food and clothing is a, is a worthy goal. Caring for a family, having children, <clears throat> inspiring the next generation is a worthy goal. 
making a meaningful contribution to society or to a field or to a technology or a service is a worthy goal. These are not the bad kinds of things that people can give their lives to. These are goals that have meaning and value among most peoples and in society. But Jesus said that every one of them at the root is fatally flawed. For those who pursue the basics of food and clothing, Jesus said this is what characterizes the lives of unbelievers. Do not worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father knows you have these needs. Do not make that the goal of your life. It is a flawed foundation. To those who would put their families and their marriages and their children at the center of their being, Jesus said, unless a man hates his father and his mother, his wife and his children, he cannot be my disciple. Because to put family at the center of our lives is to make the family our God and to displace the rightful position of Jesus Christ. And he said, those who do that, are going to find in the end bitter disappointment because they have really built an idol in the place of God. For those who would invest themselves in some kind of profession, Jesus said, a foolish man is the one who builds his house in the sand. And the sands shift and change. Don't we know it in our economy? Not picking on the medical profession necessarily today, but I recall my days in Tennessee. We had a surgeon in our congregation, and he was playing, of all things, church softball when he slid dramatically into one of the bases and then injured his shoulder found himself in his own hospital with his shoulder casted, unable to care for his patients, and he was quite disappointed. I remember going to see him, and he was making everyone miserable, being accustomed to somewhat of a prima donna kind of uh, experience. He was uh, now at the orders of other doctors. He was making the nurses miserable, his family miserable. I didn't even enjoy visiting with him. (laughs) He was very angry. Never again would he play church softball. What a foolish thing to jeopardize his finely trained arm in such a ridiculous pursuit. I remember thinking later, I wasn't exactly sure how he was going to go to and from work any longer because accidents happen. But you see, essential to his career were his fingers 
He did recover, by the way. Essential to his career were his fingers, and if anything happened to them, his career was over. People build their lives on things that are subject to accidents and trauma and disaster and disease. For those who pursue security, Jesus put it this way, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What does it profit? The real question in life comes down to when we come to the end of our days, however long or short they may be, will we look back with satisfaction and genuine pleasure and happiness or will we look back with bitter disappointment and wonder where the years have gone and how we have wasted them? Peter was at the end of his life when he wrote his two letters. He was only a few short months or perhaps a year or two from his own martyrdom where he was going to die a fairly cruel death as Jesus had prophesied to him on the beach one morning as they were having breakfast after the resurrection. And in 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 8, he has something to say about the foundation He says, and coming to him, that is to Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2, 4, as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become a stone, the very chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. You know, Peter, it's, it's kind of interesting when you look at his life. By the time Jesus was crucified, Peter had become disillusioned with the cause, and somewhat frustrated He denied Christ three times, as was predicted. He was surprised at his own infidelity in faith to the Lord. And then after the resurrection, 
it turn to a personal and bitter disappointment. His solution to the whole problem was, I'm just going to go fishing. That had been his profession. If he had been a carpenter, he said, I'm going to go build houses. Or I'm going to go whatever. But he said, I'm going fishing. Jesus wouldn't let him off the hook. He said, Peter, feed my sheep. Follow me, feed my sheep. I have prayed for you. Satan has desired to have you that he could sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have turned, strengthen the brothers. After the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, beautifully and symbolically represented by these doves hovering all over my head this morning, (laughs) when the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the upper room, Peter was a transformed man. He began to preach the gospel with power. 3,000 were converted at his first sermon. And for the next years of his life, probably 35 or 40, Peter saw miracle after miracle as he walked with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Now he's come to the end and his whole attitude has been transformed. I say this to you because it's interesting to me that the transformation in Peter's life really came after the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus had gone back into heaven. You may say to me, well, if I could walk with Jesus, that would make all the difference in the world. But I want to tell you that the kind of walking Peter did was with the risen Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is accessible to you and to me. And in walking with him in that way throughout his days, Peter came to this conclusion at the end about the cornerstone. One of the things that stands out to me is he says, there is a living stone. It's not a dead stone. It's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. Jesus Christ is a living stone. He is alive. He is risen, and He is alive. And and the stone is a living stone. It also implies a relationship. Peter says that this stone is precious to God. That word in the Greek actually means, uh, the, the actual Greek word is intima. It means intimate. It is close to the heart of God. It is valued by God above all. It is precious to Him. The relationship that Peter is talking about with Jesus Christ is one that is intimate with God. He is living and He is precious. But then he says, We also, as living stones are being built to a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ because as we come to Him, we also become living stones and precious 
in the sight of God. There's a verse, verse 7, that says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But that's a bit of an awkward translation. The Greek is challenging here. It literally means this, you as living stones, this is preciousness to God. You are precious to God when you make Jesus Christ the foundation of your life. That which he values, now you value. And when you value what God values... In Jesus Christ, you become precious to Him, intimate with Him. He invests in you. At the end of his days, Peter says, I'm talking about a relationship. I'm talking about living stones. I'm talking about a life that has been lived upon the foundation and the bedrock and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He is the motivating factor of my life. And friends, God knows we have need for daily food. God knows that we will have families and that we will have careers and that we will have all of these other things but it is Jesus Christ who brings them into the right perspective, who establishes the appropriate order, who lays for us the right foundation that brings everything into proper symmetry in our lives. He is the one who makes sense of it all. And the thing that God spoke to me so clearly about as I looked at this verse is, and those who believe in him, will not be disappointed. They will not be disappointed. Do you want to know for sure that when you come to the end of your journey, you can look back with no regrets, without disappointment, not wonder what happened to all the years and have I wasted my life? Everything else does eventually pass away. But when you come to the end of days, your days, will you not be disappointed? Those who believe in the risen Christ who put their lives upon his bedrock foundation who build their lives upon him will not be disappointed he makes sense out of it all so many many things in this fallen world can take away or in other ways crack and fracture and mar all the other cornerstones we may choose. And when we come to the end, our lives will be falling down around us. And we're going to wonder, what was it all about?
but for those who build their lives on the living, risen Savior as the foundation for all that they are and all that they do, there is, in the end, no disappointment. I don't want you to be disappointed. I want you to live a full life and come to the end of your days and say, man, it's been good. It's not only been good, it's going to get better. There is laid up for me a crown, and I'm going to hear my father say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is going to say, welcome, I've prepared the kingdom for you. You have lived well. Are you building your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Do you recognize your need for him? This morning I challenge you. If he is not the center of your life, if he is not the one for whom you live above all else, your cornerstone is cracked. Your life will crumble one day. But if you have made him the center, you will not be disappointed. Thank you, Father, for your love for us in Jesus Christ, for the life that he gave to pay the price for our sin on the cross, that through his blood we might be cleansed and forgiven, that for those who turn to him in faith, asking for that cleansing of the blood of Christ and putting their faith and hope in him alone, there is no disappointment, but a sure foundation for a life well lived. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.